The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. First this week, Troy, myth and reality at the British Museum. Stories of the Trojan War were first told by Homer and continue to fascinate people today, nearly 3,000 years later. As well as looking at the ways that the Trojan cycle of myths have been told over millennia, the British Museum's show follows in the footsteps of the archaeologists who aim to prove the reality of ancient Troy, a quest that finally came to fruition in the 19th century. Leslie Fitton is the exhibition's co-curator and she joins me now. Leslie, I wonder if we might begin by asking you to give us a brief rundown of the story of the Trojan Wars. It's a long story, and in the exhibition, we have worked hard to just hit the main edited highlights. Essentially, it starts with the quarrel of three goddesses over a golden apple. It's marked for the fairest, and Hera, Athena and Aphrodite all wanted. Zeus has more sense than to alienate two of the three by making the judgment himself, so he gives that job to Paris, the Prince of Troy. The goddesses all offer bribes and Aphrodite offers Paris the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. He finds that irresistible, gives the apple to Aphrodite. Then he has to go to Sparta to retrieve the most beautiful woman who is Helen, then of Sparta, not of Troy, because she is married to King Menelaus of Sparta. Paris takes Helen away and... Uh, Menelaus is outraged, not surprisingly. He goes to his brother Agamemnon, the high king of all the Greeks, and persuades him to set off with a huge force to take Troy and to retrieve Helen. It's the famous thousand ships. They get to Troy. They then fight for ten really bitter years. It's not an easy city to take. It's strongly fortified. The Trojans are also great warriors. Eventually, of course, the Greeks do win because of the trick of the wooden horse, the famous wooden horse that has warriors hidden inside it. It's brought by the Trojans into their city. The warriors jump out, open the gates, the Greeks pour in, and that's the end of Troy and the destruction of a great city. Now, the exhibition... When you think Troy at the British Museum, one's immediate instinct is perhaps to think that this is going to be a show of uh, ancient objects. But it's absolutely not that, is it? Tell us what it is. It's absolutely not that. And in fact, the very first thing that the visitor sees as they walk in is a huge canvas by Cy Twombly, painted in 1962. Um, We were very keen to talk about this great story, one of the world's greatest stories, in terms not only just of the ways that the Greeks and Romans told it, but the ways it's been responded to since then, right through every era, every generation almost, up to the present day. And so our art, the objects in the show, go from, well, the earliest are around 2500 BC, but they end with absolutely contemporary works of 2019. So uh, we should explain to you, so you, as you say, there's, there's Twombly, but there's also Anthony Caro. So in a way, two of the most contemporary objects in the whole exhibition are the ones that greet you as you first walk in. Absolutely, they do. But we've also put into that space two really interesting um, pots from Troy, from uh, Schliemann's excavations there, that date from the third millennium BC. But we chose them because they're blackened and burnt, and they weren't blackened in Troy itself, but in Berlin at the end of World War II. The Allied bombing of the city burnt the museum store where they were kept. And we wanted to put those in for two reasons. One was to say straight away to the visitor that Troy is both a place of imagination and also a real place. And um, the other reason was to underline how the Trojan War has become an archetype for all wars. That story has been adopted, adapted, responded to in the context of more recent conflicts too. Let's get to the archaeology now, because of course for very, very, for millennia, 
they, they, there have been people trying to find out whether the Trojan War actually happened. And we still don't know, do we? But we do know that Troy existed as a real place. Yes, we do. And that's a really interesting story in itself. The, the ancient Greeks had no doubt that Homer was telling a story that had really happened. It was history, not recorded history, but it was something that had happened in their own early past. Um, but then what happened was that um, they also thought that Troy had been completely destroyed because the story said so. But they didn't doubt that the Ilion of their own time, the Greek and Roman town, was the site of ancient Troy. They went there. It was a place of pilgrimage. They wanted to pay their respects to the heroes of the story. It was only after the end of antiquity that Ilion, the Greek and Roman city, but also, of course, old Troy, uh, were lost and nobody knew where they were. And then really remarkably, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, it became a matter of the most heated debate whether Troy had existed, whether the Trojan War had taken place. And people like um, the poet Byron visited the plain of Troy. He saw the tumuli, you know, the mounds in the plain, which are uh, burial mounds. And he was convinced that this was the, the the site of the Trojan War, that Homer, he was a great Homer defender. Homer could not possibly have got this wrong. Others, though, said, you're being completely romantically ridiculous. Uh, This story is a product of Homer's poetic imagination. It is a waste of time to look for ancient Troy. Anyway, what happens eventually is the birth of archaeology as a a discipline. Um, And in the very early days of archaeology, a local resident in the Troad, an Englishman called Frank Calvert, does some excavations um, in the region. And he gets an inkling that he has actually found the ancient site of Troy. But he doesn't have um, one thing that's really important for large-scale excavations, which is money. And that's where... Heinrich Schliemann comes in, the self-made German businessman, mid-life, if you like. He's 48 when he gets to Troy. He has resources to do a large-scale excavation. So Calvert shows him his small-scale work, and Schliemann instantly is on it. In 1870, he starts digging at Troy. He finds the early levels of the site, Uh, He doesn't totally find the Trojan War. He likes to claim that he has. He claims to the world that he's found the Troy of Priam and of the war. Um, Inwardly, he's not totally convinced that he's really getting the site right. And we now know that his Troy of the Trojan War is about a thousand years too early for any sort of feasible background for the clash as described by Homer. Right, so so in a way that there's this nice sort of neat thing that Schliemann's Troy is actually sort of a myth in its own way, and and Schliemann was a great myth maker about himself. He liked to tell his own story in a really romantic way of the poor boy made good, the young boy with the dream of finding Troy. Um, later and slightly more cynical critics have said it wasn't exactly like that. So yes, there was a lot of mythology around Schliemann um, and and around his discoveries, and they really hit the headlines at the time there was a lot of discussion um, about what he had really found so the archaeology comes up to date because there is this tantalizing detail which is sort of spelt out in the show which is that there is some evidence that there was contact in the period which we're talking about which might indicate that there was grounds for an actual trojan war is that right yeah i think that's come increasingly into focus actually um sort of recently, over maybe the last um, 20 or 30 years. Um, It still doesn't amount to saying anything more than there's a feasible background here, but we uh, archaeologists understand better now the late Bronze Age Eastern Mediterranean. They understand the uh, growth and increasing power and influence of Mycenae. Obviously, for a Trojan War to happen, Agamemnon's Mycenae has to be strong, influential, powerful. They understand that Troy itself is indeed a a well-fortified city in the Late Bronze Age. It has huge walls and and defensive towers. But more interesting, much smaller scale than huge walls, there are scraps of written evidence from the Hittite Empire of sort of central uh, Anatolia that start to crystallise our picture of where 
early Troy fitted in the ancient world and where it seems to fit is at the very western extremity of the Hittite Empire. The records are fairly scanty and sparse, but they do show that Troy at some periods was a vassal state of the Hittite Empire, loyal to the great kings of that uh, empire. But um, sometimes it broke away and there are sort of fault lines on the extreme western edge of of the Hittite uh, domain. And there's evidence also, and this is so intriguing, it's so tantalising really, there's evidence uh, that the Hittites are in contact with people who they call Ahiyawoi, and that's the Achaeans uh, uh, of Homer. Um, Hittite geography has got clearer. We know that Troy was called Wilusa, that's Ilios of Homer. We know that the Hittites and the Ahiyawoi, the Greeks, sometimes were at loggerheads, they sometimes clashed. We know that Troy was somehow in the middle of that. We still can't completely prove the existence of the Trojan War. So there's no a remnant of a wooden horse anyway. No, that's what you would need to find, really. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the, the retelling of the myth through the centuries and millennia indeed then. Um, one of the things I think is really wonderfully done in the show is that it, it really uses Richard Rogers's exhibition space I think the best I've seen it in many ways in the sense it's a vast open space isn't it and it allows you to have sort of uh, narratives sort of overlapping all the way through the show can you tell us something about that Yes. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. I think the design of the show is is really wonderfully achieved. And um, it's always hard when you see designs on paper on a computer screen to know how they'll inhabit the space. But when we saw it all built and installed, we were really thrilled with the way that sense of narrative, that sense of flow for the visitor had, we hoped, come across. So it's great to hear that you thought so. Um, I think the way the story's changed over time is, is another really interesting thing with some unexpected twists and turns, really. So one of the reasons the story is an archetype, the war, the conflict is an archetype, is because it is, I believe, because in Homer's hands, it's very even-handed. Each side has heroes, each side has flaws. You're not naturally invited to be pro-Greek or pro-Trojan. That changes with classical Greece, where the Trojans become the other. They're more commonly shown as slightly strange, slightly foreign, slightly the enemy. But then what happens later as we go into the medieval period is that um, knowledge of ancient Greek and therefore of Homer dies away in the West. So so Western Europe inherits this tradition through Latin accounts. Now, of course, Aeneas is one of the few Trojans to survive and he leaves the burning city of Troy with his father and son and he goes off to found a new city. He's the early founder of Rome. So Aeneas becomes in the Christian world a model of Christian piety, a dutiful family man. And you get this extraordinary phenomenon in the medieval world in Western Europe that everybody wants to be a Trojan. And so Trojan heroes are invented, even if they don't exist in the ancient story, to be the founders of, say, Britain itself. Brute or Brutus founds Britain. And indeed, he founds London, Troy Novant or New Troy. And so the medieval world was strongly pro-Trojan. It's only really with the Renaissance that the Greeks come back into the picture. And I I suppose, really, from then onwards, people sort of sympathise most with the Greeks, don't they? I don't really know. Maybe it's only because the Greeks win. Anyway, the Greeks come back into the picture. Then you get the period when people are thinking very romantically about heroism and how wonderful it is to be a warrior and a hero on the battlefield. With the 20th century, that changes again two disastrous world wars, apart from anything else, bring about a new cynicism, a sense of criticism of military action and and military leaders. So, again, responses to Troy change. And then we also talk a bit about contemporary responses and what it means to people in the modern world, because this story still matters to people, I think. And you have a very direct way of showing that with Eleanor Antin's photograph, which uh, is actually a direct 
response to a Rubens image. So you can you can literally show how over time the image is being the the story is being reimagined for a new time. Absolutely, that's a really good example of a very direct link of the way um, uh, uh, sort of icons or the way of showing it is passed on. We also have some really interesting judgment of Paris scenes, which are common in the ancient world on the Greek pottery, as I'm sure you saw. Um, but there are some fabulous uh, more recent imaginings. William Blake, Lucas Cranach the Elder. The Cranach's extraordinary. It's a fabulous, fabulous painting. But the one I really love is the Hans Youth, which is Elizabeth I and the Three Goddesses. And that one is it really uh, is completely extraordinary because it's a total gender reversal. Elizabeth I plays Paris in the scene and she stands there with the golden apple, but it's not really an apple, it's the golden orb of power, of her power as monarch. And instead of giving it to one of the three goddesses, she puts them all to flight. She sort of shoos them away and says, I don't need your bribes. I don't need wisdom or earthly power or beauty. I have all of that so big on and I just love the gender reversal and I love the sort of blow for the sisterhood really because so many of the women in the Troy story have such a hard time it's nice to see Elizabeth I reversing that balance a bit let's talk about that a bit because you can see you know one I guess you know a sort of consistent theme throughout the show is the delight in which male artists show Helen of Troy in particular and that you know that, you know, that, that she's she is this complex figure and they you can you can see that they clearly enjoy uh, portraying her but it's it's that male gaze on this uh, historic wound I suppose that Helen of Troy is really the ultimate challenge for an artist, isn't she? How do you portray the most beautiful woman in the world? Um, and, and, and there are various responses to that challenge in the exhibition. But as you say, she is very much subject to the male gaze. Even the goddesses are subject to Paris's male gaze. Um, and so the Eleanor Antin photograph that you mentioned is, again, a, a, a sort of interesting challenge to that because her... It's based on the Rubens, but her Paris and Hermes are completely foppish and ridiculous looking. The three goddesses are a delight. Hera's like a 1950s housewife. Um, Aphrodite is like a sort of vamp at a party. And Athena is a gun-toting, sort of um, leather-clad fighter. So she's made a sort of caricature and a sort of joke of the whole thing. But she brings Helen into the scene. Helen's not normally shown in the judgment of Paris. And Helen, you really get the sense of how disconsolate she feels, how objectified, how much she resents just being made the prize in a beauty contest. And of course, Helen's position in all of this was discussed from the ancient world onwards and still discussed today. Is she a victim, just a pawn on the god's chessboard? Was she actually a flighty and and, and disreputable person who who behaved badly? Uh, How do we see Helen? And some, some artists... All the artists in the show do show different aspects of her fascinating and sort of quicksilver character. That's it, it's sort of endlessly renewable, isn't it, this mm. story? Now, my favourite bit of the show is something which I think could have gone badly wrong, but it's actually brilliantly done, which is this sort of semi-reconstruction of the Trojan horse, where you have these beams which evoke the sort of back of a horse. Uh, tell us about that, because in, within that, that, for, that form, you actually contain some of the objects which refer to the horse. Yes, the... Um the wooden horse is, we hope, sort of quite subtly evoked in that part of the build of the exhibition. It does, as you say, look like uh, the sort of ribs of the horse and there's a, a very sort of gentle indication of the profile of its head. Uh, the designers, I know, also had in mind ships, the, the beams of the, of the Greek ships. And I don't know if you saw the 2004 film Troy, but one of the very best things about that was the way the filmmakers reconstructed the wooden horse because they thought to themselves, what would the Greeks have had to make this horse out of? And they thought old bits of ship. So that one also is made of old bits of ship. Anyway, our designers have done a lovely job with this with this sort of gentle evocation of the Trojan horse. And inside it, we've put some of the best Trojan horses from the ancient world. It's actually not that 
commonly shown in ancient art. But we have a terrific fresco from Pompeii. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Isn't it glorious? And, and, and it's, such, it's again so sort of subtly painted. Um, it shows the Trojans really straining to pull the horse into the city. The horse isn't big enough for warriors <laughs> no. to fist inside, but there we are. That's Roman art for you. Um, and and um, quite faint now, not terribly well preserved, but poor old Cassandra is raising her arms in horror, trying to stop this disastrous, monstrous horse, as she knows it to be, from being brought into the city. Famously, nobody ever believes a word Cassandra says. So she fails and in it goes. So that's a wonderful one. There's also a brilliant Roman sarcophagus lid from the Ashmolean Museum, um, which, to my mind, a bit amusingly really, shows the wooden horse, but it's wearing a helmet and, and a shield. You'd think that might be a bit of a giveaway, <laughs> that this was not exactly as innocent as it seemed. But there we are. <laughs> now, the exhibition, in a way, ends as you begin with a work of contemporary art. And again, it's a really, really surprising and shocking moment at the end of the show. Tell us about it. I'm completely in love with the work that we end on. We decided to focus on the Shield of Achilles. You've seen the Shield of Achilles in earlier sections in the ancient art. It's the shield that Achilles' goddess mother Thetis asks the smith god Hephaestus to make for him because, of course, poor old Patroclus has lost Achilles' own shield when he's killed by Hector in battle. In Homer, in the Iliad, there's an enormously long and elaborate description of this shield and it is completely astonishing. This is a shield for the greatest Greek warrior. You'd expect something scary on it, like a gorgon head or something to scare and put off the enemy. Not a bit of it. It has scenes of the whole of human existence. It has a city at peace and a city at war. The vintage, the harvest, um, marriage processions, dancing, a siege, uh, wild animals and uh, domestic animals. It's just got everything. And at the very end of the exhibition we have actually two things. One's the uh, John Flaxman neoclassical reconstruction of the, of the shield. It's a golden, well it's a silver gilt shield where he tries to follow Homer's description. But we've paired that with a wonderful contemporary work by a living artist um, called Spencer Finch, an American artist who works in light. And what I love about Spencer Finch's work is that it's both scientific and yet intensely romantic. He went to Troy with a light meter and he took meter readings at dawn um, on the beach at Troy as, as, as the sun came up. And he recreates in this work the exact quality of the light of the dawn of Troy. He does it with um, fluorescent tubes and then um, uh, gels uh, on them that create the light quality. And that was the scientific part, but what he was thinking was that so much had happened at Troy in the mythology, the great battles, in actual history, right up to the time now when it's a, a you know a site with many visitors and tourists. He thought it had been such a sort of lively place, so much going on, but what had not changed? And his conclusion was that what had not changed was the light of the sun and the dawn light and so he says of his work this is the light that Achilles saw I thought that was wonderfully romantic and I like the shield of Achilles as an ending because the whole exhibition has had so much of sort of death and destruction anger rage vengeance um but on the shield of Achilles in Homer war is only about less than a quarter of the scenes of human life. So I think we just wanted at the end people to stand back a little from that and say, yes, humanity is hopeless, we haven't learned the lessons, wars still happen, but still perspective here. Step back from it. It's only one aspect of human existence which otherwise has all this rich variety, as Homer says. What a wonderful way to end the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Troy, Myth and Reality is at the British Museum until the 8th of March 2020. We'll be back talking about protests at the Troy exhibition after this. The picture restorer tasked with cleaning an anonymous 17th century portrait got the shock of his life when he removed the overpainting on the face to reveal the features of Queen Elizabeth I. Subsequent research proved that this was indeed an unknown portrait of the Virgin Queen, painted around 1562, shortly after Elizabeth came to the throne. Now the work is to be offered at Bonham's Old Master Painting Sale next month. 
Andrew McKenzie, who heads Bonham's old master department, explained the significance of the find. This is a very early yet sophisticated depiction of Elizabeth. We're all familiar with her later appearance as a strong, all-powerful monarch, but her early years on the throne were dogged with instability and threats from home and abroad. From her accession onwards, however, she and her court were acutely alive to the importance and possibilities of presentation. We call it brand management today. And this portrait is among the very first we know that projects a new, approved image of the Queen. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the Troy exhibition is sponsored by BP, and like many exhibitions funded by BP, the exhibition's opening was greeted with protests. In this instance, the group BP or Not BP blocked entrances to the exhibition with living statues of characters linked to the Troy story and Greek mythology, and created a new one, the oily god of fossil fuels, Petroleus. This was the latest in a series of protests amid ongoing debates about fossil fuel sponsorship that seen the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Galleries of Scotland end their association with BP. We've discussed this issue on the podcast before, of course, but we felt this was a good moment to talk to the activists themselves. And I'm now joined by Jess Worth from Culture Unstained, a research and campaigning organisation which aims to end fossil fuel sponsorship of culture. Jess, I'm going to start by asking you a question I wish the mainstream media would ask more campaigners when they come on their programmes. Who funds Culture Unstained? So we've mainly got funding from charitable foundations. Um, Our biggest funder is Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. So that's a trust of the Roundtree chocolate money that's... And they were Quakers, so they wanted to give it all away. So it's kind of the legacy of that. Then we get um, some funding from the KR Foundation, which is actually... Um, Scandinavian and it's money from Velux windows so like very environmentally friendly double and triple glazed windows they've set up a fund to kind of explicitly promote climate action and then in the past we've had a little bit of funding from Patagonia the outdoor um, clothing company Um, and we've had funding from a I think I'm going to get whether I'm wrong. I think Swedish foundation called the Minor Foundation for Major Challenges, and they will only fund a project that otherwise wouldn't get funded and wouldn't happen. Okay, so can you give us a bit of a background to Culture Unstained because it emerged from campaigning essentially? Yeah, Culture Unstained emerged um, both from the kind of creative activism campaign that was targeting oil-sponsored cultural institutions and also from the growing movement within the arts and culture sector of people wanting to be able to um, kind of oppose this and change it but feeling very uncomfortable obviously about their own job security Um, and so we realized that there was a gap in terms of who is anyone doing the policy research around ethical sponsorship and actually what should cultural organisations be doing as a matter of course, what is seen as best practice by the Museums Association and Charities Commission and so on. Um, What's actually happening behind the scenes within these cultural institutions? So through freedom of information requests, we try and um, kind of shine some scrutiny on the processes around, you know, making BP sponsorship deals managing them etc internally in places like the British Museum that you can FOI and then we do a lot of work supporting people within the arts and culture sector and mobilizing them to um, sort of make the case for the end of oil sponsorship Um, and part of that is working with very influential people, well-known people like Mark Rylance and Carol Churchill and Chris Packham, who want to take a stand and feel like they're in a position to take a stand because they're kind of safe because their profile is so high, um, but want some kind of guidance and research support and so on. So, for example, we worked, I've basically worked with Mark Rylance for seven years um, since BP first started sponsoring the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, and he's had a a kind of a long process of engaging internally as well as sort of signing up to public letters and stuff that ultimately led to him resigning as an associate artist earlier this year so that's one example of the kind of work we do Um, but we also work increasingly with trade unions um, who represent arts and culture workers um, and increasingly the pressure is coming 
not just from activist groups. It's coming from staff, it's coming from unions, and it's coming from within the sector. And that's a really significant shift that we've you know, been trying to support over the last three years. That's right, isn't it? Because, the, because there was a, a, a clearly staff concern at the Science Museum, which prompted Ian Blatchford, who's the director of the Science Museum, to address his staff about this issue earlier this year. Are you finding that ha- that's happening a lot? It is happening a lot. And I think there's probably active staff campaigns or pressure in all of the cultural organisations that have oil sponsorship now. Right. Now, let's let's talk about the Troy exhibition specifically. The, the, the protest was actually done by a group called BP or Not BP. So what's their relationship to Culture Unstained? So BP or Not BP is an activist theatre group that sprung up around BP starting to sponsor the Royal Shakespeare Company. And they, I should say we, because I'm part of it, um, were really inspired by a group called Liberate Tate, who were a group of artists who were doing sort of oil-related performance interventions at Tate to um, critique Tate's sponsorship by BP. And we really like the idea of using the medium that's being sponsored to critique the sponsorship. So we thought, what does that look like for the RSC? Um, Maybe it looks like stage invasions. And so that's how I first got involved, was um, setting up BP or not BP to do short incredibly polite stage invasions a few minutes before a BP-sponsored RSC performance was due to start. So you're not and disrupting actual performances not, that was no, going on beforehand? We absolutely don't want to cause stress and upset for the actors and the frontline staff because we know that most of them are incredibly uncomfortable about BP sponsorship as well. So it's very much aimed at the management and the board and the people who have made that decision. Um, so we would do... Either we would sort of take famous phrases and themes from the Shakespeare play that was being sponsored, like um, Twelfth Night, if oil be the fuel for us, drill on, and The Tempest and so on. Or we would take a a theme, like we did Comedy of Errors, and we made it about um, the two different faces of BP, the... Um, the lover of poetry and patron of the arts versus the noxious, treacherous, belching, oily rogue and the fact that they're not two people, they're actually one. Um, And so that's how I first got involved and we got really amazing responses from audiences. That's one of the great things about doing something in a theatre is you already have a big audience who are there to um, absorb and enjoy culture and entertainment and... A big round of applause from them is a kind of undeniable sign to the RSC that actually their audience are uncomfortable about BP sponsorship as well. But nevertheless, that was seven years ago and it's taken until this summer for the RSC to actually end their relationship with BP. Um, And so as well as um, BP or not BP, we linked up with Liberate Tate and a few other groups and formed a coalition called the Art Not Oil Coalition. So we're part of that. And when Culture Unstained was founded, that also became part of the Art Not Oil Coalition. And also members of the coalition include the PCS Union, which represents a lot of staff at museums and galleries around the country. Since you formed Culture Unstained, is there a different level of engagement from the arts organisations that you are targeting? In other words, can you sit in boardrooms with these people? Can you get them to sit around a table and talk to you? So we had quite a breakthrough last week when we had an informal meeting with the chairman of the British Museum trustees. So we've we've just got to that point. Um, but actually sort of sitting at the table hasn't really been our aim our aim is to support people who actually are stakeholders in these cultural organizations to be able to sit at the table and make these arguments so for example we worked with Gary Hume the artist who was a judge of the BP Portrait Award and then had this road to Damascus moment around the Extinction Rebellion protests when he was like actually it's my responsibility to speak out on this, isn't it? So he approached us and then we got a grilling for a couple of hours to really check, you know, he really wanted to check um, that the arguments were strong um, and that he was kind of picking the right side. Um, And then we supported him to initially write a letter to Nick Cullinan, um, the director of the National Portrait Gallery. And then when he didn't really get much of a response, he then reached out to his 
amazing network of contacts and got 78 artists including lots of Turner Prize winners and big names like Anthony Gormley and um, Rachel White-Reed and Anish Kapoor etc to sign on to another letter um, to the NPG kind of putting the case more forcefully Um, and I think that's probably the right way of going about this because um, actually there's a huge amount of unhappiness about oil sponsorship within the culture sector and that's like finding ways to make that visible that don't put people's jobs at risk are probably the most powerful thing that's been happening recently. I think it's basically exactly a year since the IPCC report which said that we had 12 years to keep the level of global heating at 1.5 degrees before we reached this tipping point of two degrees, which would which would really send a, a, a series of events which would be catastrophic. I mean, it's catastrophic enough, we know that. But has there been any different level of engagement since that report in that, in that last year? Yeah, it's changed 100%. It's really been remarkable. Um, I think the combination of that... And the school strikers, Greta Thunberg, and the kind of youth increasingly challenging grown-ups and saying, you created this mess, this is our future, you need to now step up and sort it out, as well as the Extinction Rebellion protests, um, have really concentrated people's minds. And you can see that both in terms of sort of public opinions and awareness on climate change. Now two-thirds of British people think that climate change is the biggest threat facing humanity and half of them support a decarbonisation goal of net zero by 2030. So that's very, very radical and kind of unthinkable even a couple of years ago. And we've seen a similar reaction in the arts. So um, there's this movement called Culture Declares Emergency that has kind of sprung up, that has been putting pressure from the inside on arts organisations to declare a climate emergency and then think about, well, what does that mean for us in practice? And there's a recognition um increasingly sort of across the sector that that doesn't just mean programming work on climate change it actually means looking at how the building is heated and lit it's about how things are moved how things and people um are moved around the world um within the culture sector and it also means looking at who you get your funding from and in particular who you're advertising and that's the real problem that we have with oil sponsorship is that it's not just a matter of BP and Shell, you know, quietly giving money to arts organisations out of the goodness of their own heart. It is a transaction for them. And the aim of it is to um, maintain what they call their social licence to operate. So like the permission that we as society give them to continue extracting fossil fuels way beyond safe limits. And so that's why they do it is because arts organisations and museums are some of the most trusted organizations within society so if they can associate their brand with these incredibly trusted educational scientific organizations that does a huge amount of good for them and it sort of distracts attention away from their actual business activities on the ground around the world Um, and so by take by sort of entering into these sponsorship partnerships where cultural organizations are agreeing to give BP in particular, a huge amount of advertising, not just within their own buildings, but also like on the way here today, I saw lots of Troy adverts with BP logo all over it. Um, You know, that is actively helping fossil fuel organisations maintain their current business model, which is to continue extracting fossil fuels. And that is the single most important thing to turn around if we're actually going to keep temperature level rises as close to 1.5 degrees as we can and so so often we get the argument back from cultural organizations oh we have to uh, remain neutral you know we can't take a stand on things but actually remaining neutral is not advertising an oil company you know it's it's actually saying we are not going to promote this company that is doing so much damage in the world rather than saying oh we need the money so we have to promote it and we're not taking any kind of political stand you are taking a political stand when it comes to the fossil fuel industry at the moment one of the response from 
museum directors, for instance, of the Science Museum in Blatchford and of the V&A in um, Tristram Hunt, has been that the oil companies are part of the solution and therefore they should be included. What's your response to that? It's very worrying that they've bought into that greenwash. Like BP's got a really big advertising campaign going on at the moment that just absolutely trumpets their investments in electric cars and charging points and wind farms and solar panels and uh, biofuels and all of the kind of low carbon things that they're doing around the world. But in reality, that only accounts for 3% of their capital. The 97% left over is all being invested in extracting more fossil fuels and and it's not just that they're making the transition away from fossil fuels but slowly um over there was a article in the guardian recently that revealed that over the next 10 years bp is planning to increase its fossil fuel extraction by 20 percent. so it is going in completely the wrong direction and it's being able to do that because of its social license to operate that cultural organisations are helping it to maintain. And so um, it's really, really important to actually look at the figures and not just the spin. And one of the very troubling things that happened recently was that Richard Lambert, who's the um, chairman of trustees of the British Museum, who we met recently, actually went on to Radio 4 and defended BP's business activities and said that their uh, business model was aligned with Paris climate goals, which is the 1.5 degrees goal that you just mentioned. And that is going so beyond what a cultural organisation should be doing. It shouldn't be doing BP's PR on the BBC for it. Uh, But those are the kinds of situations that they're increasingly finding themselves in. And it's another argument for actually ending those relationships because they're compromising arts institutions integrity what what do you say to the people that say that uh, we use oil on a daily basis why should we be holding museums to a higher moral standard than we ourselves are engaging in on a daily basis well our entire society and infrastructure at the moment is based around you know multiply available free fossil fuels oil and gas and coal um but we need to transition away from that really quickly and and indeed we already are like there've been some days this year where all of our energy has been generated by renewables which is fantastic so this isn't some kind of crazy vision in the future we actually have the technology we need to transition away from fossil fuels um and the problem is the power and influence of the fossil fuel industry and oil companies in particular are are kind of impeding that. And so I think we need to create the conditions where it's possible to live an ethical lifestyle that doesn't involve using some fossil fuels somewhere. At the moment, that's pretty much impossible unless you go and live off grid in the woods, you know. You can't actually participate in modern society without some kind of interaction with fossil fuel products. But the point is that that's what needs to change. And science is very, very clear on that. Um, And it is changing. And so, and I think the other um, problem with doing that sort of personal, making that personal hypocrisy argument is that oil companies are some of the biggest players in the world in terms of climate policy and energy policy. They have huge amounts of political and financial clout and they have very, very successfully lobbied governments and continue to do so to actually slow down climate action, to kill legislation that they don't want, to make sure that they still have all of the permissions that they need to be extracting oil and gas way into the future um so in terms of like what are the biggest barriers standing in our way to actually um decarbonizing the oil industry is one of the biggest so it's actually a political problem not a technological problem and by partnering with cultural organizations bp has actually sucked them in um uh, you know at a level that is just not comparable with individuals choosing whether to drive or not um so i think it's it it massively distracts from and misrepresents the situation and i think it's quite a lazy argument by people that essentially don't want to have this conversation because they find it uncomfortable um obviously the the arts are funded in a very precarious model still in the sense that 
especially over the last 20 years. There's an increasing emphasis on the museums and cultural organisations being able to have having to raise money from private sources. If if fossil fuel companies are not in that picture, then is there any evidence there are different industries that are willing to step in where they currently fit? So I think this is it's really important to recognise that the cuts have really been devastating. I think it's a third of arts funding over the last 10 years has been cut. Um, And so, yeah, cultural organisations have no choice really than to start forming partnerships with the private sector. And that brings with it all kinds of risks. And we would argue that that makes it even more important to have some kind of ethical fundraising policy that aligns the values of the organisation with the companies that it's prepared to partner with, because otherwise they're leaving themselves very, very open to these kinds of controversies. Um, And I also think the amount that BP gives to the arts is overstated. Um, For the British Museum, it's 0.5% of their annual income. It's not a huge amount of money in in proportionally. And it's kind of similar. I think it's 2% for the National Portrait Gallery um, and about 0.6% for the um, Royal Opera House. So, you know, sponsors do come and go anyway. All of these organisations have development departments with really amazing fundraisers in it whose job it is to constantly be seeking out new sources of funding because... Um, sponsorship relationships naturally come to an end anyway. Um, So I think it's very, very um, misleading for the British Museum in particular to say we couldn't put on um, blockbuster exhibitions without BP. It's like, no, you probably couldn't put them on without some kind of corporate sponsorship. The problem is that BP is a really, really counterproductive sponsor for you to be working with. And you've known about this for a really long time. Like the the, the time that they renewed their current sponsorship deal with BP was in 2016. And there was huge pressure coming already from within the arts sector. Lots of people signing a letter to Hartwig Fisher as he sort of came into the role at the British Museum saying, please don't renew the deal with BP. Um, there were there were protests. I used to, I worked at the at the at Tate Britain in two thousand and one. There were protests yeah. against against BP sponsorship yeah. of Tate Britain in two thousand and one. Yeah. This is as you say, it's not a new ph- phenomenon. It's not, and it's something that they should have seen coming and planned for. And so I think the whole like, oh, but we're really stuck because we don't have another corporate sponsor right now lined up. I think is a bit. Um, misleading <laughs> of them to protest about. They've known about this for a really long time and they've chosen, they've made a calculation that the benefits that they get from BP sponsorship outweigh the damage to their reputation. And all of a sudden that has shifted and now maybe that's not the case anymore. Um, and they're in the middle of these five-year contracts. Um, and that's a really difficult situation but if you look at what the Royal Shakespeare Company did it had this very very substantial internal conversation it tried to listen to all of the different voices um, and it made the decision to end its five-year contract with BP halfway through Um, and it said that actually we recognize that climate change is the biggest emergency facing humanity and that we have a responsibility to do what we can on that and we're particularly finding that our relationship with young people is being damaged by BP sponsorship and young people are an incredibly important part of our audience and so we've heard that and we're actually going to end the relationship with BP and that's such a brave thing to do it really shows leadership and I think maybe cultural organisations who still take money from from oil companies should be thinking actually this is an opportunity for us to show leadership as well rather than this is a disaster and we need to batten down the hatches and hope it goes away because we know climate change isn't going to go away and we know that you know the need to decarbonize is only going to get more urgent as we get further through those 12 years um so they can't, they need to look at the way that things are going and just put a stop to it now i think but as you say, the British Museum, 
certainly the Science Museum and Science Museum's directory in Blatchford is very bullish about continuing BP sponsorship. He even said that even if they were lavishly publicly funded, he would want to still work with with fossil fuel companies. Do you think that you've you've met with an immovable object in terms of those organisations? No, I think they're going to have to move and it's just a question of when. And I think sort of ignoring the public mood on climate change and the need for large organisations, particularly educational and scientific organisations, to actually show leadership in kind of modelling what the transition away from fossil fuels looks like. That is only going to increase. Um, So I think that they're being quite blind to the direction of travel at the moment um, and that is going to have to shift. But it's particularly concerning coming from Ian Blatchford because he's also the chairman of the National Museum Directors Association. So he is sort of um, a mouthpiece for the whole museum sector and he could not be more out of step with the rest of the museum sector. So we went to the Museums Association Conference in Brighton um, last month Um, And the theme of it was sustainability. Like so many conversations were going on about, okay, what are museums' responsibilities in the face of climate change? And, you know, conversations that have got very far down the line and a lot of museums are now taking this really seriously. Um, And so the Science Museum in particular is looking incredibly isolated in kind of saying, oh, this doesn't matter. We need to work with everybody. Um, I think if they were actually paying attention to where the rest of the sector has got to, um, they would definitely shift that position. It's a question of watch this space, I think. Jess, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. You can read more about Culture Unstained's activities at cultureunstained.org. When we reported on the protests at the British Museum's Troy exhibition, a spokeswoman for the museum said, The British Museum respects other people's right to express their views and allows peaceful protest on-site at the museum as long as there is no risk to the museum's collection, staff or visitors. And just to give you an idea of Hartwig Fisher, the director of the British Museum's recent statements, he said that BP's support for the museum over the years has helped create unique learning opportunities. This sort of support is vital to the museum's mission. He's also said we've had many conversations inside the British Museum and with many people outside, also with representatives of the various groups, to share our views and understand how we go about this better. That includes the trustees of the British Museum. Together, we've discussed this question in great depth. We feel that it's our mission to make it possible for people to encounter stories like the one told in this exhibition on Troy that display the danger and impact of violence. And that's it for this week. You can read all the latest news on our website at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find in the App Store. The December print edition of the Art Newspaper is just out and includes our review of the year across all our sections and a Leonardo special in the review section where we review the Louvre exhibition we featured on the podcast and look at many of the 500th anniversary books. You can subscribe to the Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com where you can find the subscription to suit you so that you can read our reporting across multiple platforms. While there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Click the newsletter link at the top right of our homepage. And do check out our new monthly newsletter called Art Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our experts in London and New York. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you've enjoyed it, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David is also the editor. Thanks to Leslie, to Jess and thank you for listening. Join us next week when we'll be at Art Basel, Miami Beach. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now. <laughs>